This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Trump is calling for a big increase in defense spending. To rebuild the depleted military of the United States of America at a time we most need it. He has called for a $54 billion increase, which he'd achieve by slashing many other programs. One community that may see a net benefit is Colorado Springs, the state's second largest city. It is surrounded by military installations, and it is positioning itself as a national hub for cybersecurity. Mayor John Southers joins me from the Springs. He's also the former Republican Attorney General of Colorado. And Mayor, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. We're going to talk today as well about homelessness in your community and policing. But first, defense accounts for about 40 percent of the economy there. Uh, I know that it's still early days. But what sense do you have of how your community will be affected by a potential boost in defense spending? I can't help but believe we would benefit from it. We have very critical missions located here in Colorado Springs. We've got U.S. Space Command. We've got NORAD, NORTHCOM. Uh, Schriever Air Force Base is very uh, very involved in GPS and a whole variety of things. I do not believe we could have a significant military buildup without Colorado Springs benefited, benefiting significantly from that. Trump's proposed budget calls for beefing up the nation's cybersecurity system. And um, with the new National Cybersecurity Center in Colorado Springs, uh, I imagine you see some potential there as well. We have really unique synergy in that regard. We've got these uh, very critical military commands that are cyber dependent. We've got the Air Force Academy and uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs that are very, very uh, heavy into cyber. The Air Force Academy has a center that's basically very much involved in the whole Air Force cyber program. University of Colorado, Colorado Springs is kind of leading the way in a consortium of universities that uh, degree programs and certification programs for cyber. We've got about 110 private sector cybersecurity companies. Now, many of them have defense contracts. Some of them do not. Uh, we've got companies like Route 9B, which is uh, in tops on the up-and-coming Cyber 500 that's headquartered in Colorado Springs. We think that's a huge part of our future. And I, I would suspect that any kind of increased military spending in that area would also be of great benefit to Colorado Springs. The president has referred to the military as depleted. Do you see signs of that? You know, I'm not uh, uh, involved day-to-day in, in the military operations, so um, uh, I, I can't speak to that directly other than to say that when I spend time with um, General Gonzales, the uh, commander at Fort Carson, and he talks about uh, the burdens of multiple deployments on our soldiers. It does appear to me that the United States Army uh, is depleted at this point in time in comparison to the past. Uh, I can't speak to the Air Force or the, the Navy, but I do hear um, a lot of concern about having more uh, soldiers uh, to do all the various missions that they're called upon to do these days. President Trump hopes to achieve this boost he's proposing in defense spending by making significant cuts to domestic programs. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Meals on Wheels taking a hit, for instance, cuts to Interior, which oversees 
public lands. I think of the fires that have devastated the Colorado Springs area in the past and that may require federal support. So just as the city might stand to gain something, does it also stand to lose something in this proposed budget? Well, undoubtedly, uh, cities our size uh, get uh, block grants um, through HUD uh, that uh, contribute to our housing uh, programs and things like that. Uh, those seem to be on the line. Um, I think there, uh, there well could be some uh, other c- cuts of the nature that uh, you're talking about. Obviously, we're well prepared to deal with emergencies ourselves, uh, but the feds uh, oftentimes make uh, – uh, grant funds available to to deal with those issues after the fact. Um, and there's certainly a possibility those could be impacted. The president's budget also calls for cuts to climate change programs. Defense Secretary James Mattis's view on climate change seems to be at odds with the administration. He has said that climate change is real and called it a national security issue. Uh, as a mayor of a city that is near so many major military installations, and that depends on natural tourism. What are your thoughts on climate change and and perhaps its relationship to national security? Well, my thought is we're moving a direction that nothing that's going to happen in Washington is going to change in the long run. For example, um, the Colorado Springs uh, Utility Board has voted to close the Drake uh, utility plant in downtown Cairo Springs by uh, 2035, where we've been phasing out units over time, and the, that unit will be uh, phased out. Uh, there will be, I think, regardless of uh, you know particular rhetoric that's uh, being spoken about in Washington at this point in time, there'll be less reliance on coal as we move forward. I think there'll be more reliance on uh, natural gas and renewables. And I think there's some inevitability about that. Um, so uh, I think there, regardless of, as I say, in particular rhetoric uh, in the administration or whatever, I think the path is pretty clear the direction the country's going. You mentioned the Drake plant. This is the Martin Drake power plant. It's coal-fired, isn't it? Uh, actually, it has uh, uh, multiple units. Uh, it has been primarily coal-fired through the years, but is becoming less so. Huh. And units are being shut down uh, over over time with the entire plant being uh, taken out of service uh, no later than 2035. I, I personally believe it will be earlier than that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the mayor of Colorado's Second City, that's John Southers. He joins us from Colorado Springs. And uh, I'd clarify, it's the second largest city. We don't like to refer to ourselves. It's the the second second city. city. Very good. Yeah, we think we're the the best city. A a key word that I omitted there, Mayor. Uh, Your community is also home to many veterans. And nearly two years ago, the city took on the mayor's challenge. This was a call to action from the White House to end veteran homelessness, Uh, more accurately to reach something called functional zero by the end of 2015. Craig Schlotman was on our program about two years ago. He was with the nonprofit Homes for All Veterans, and uh, he explained the goal this way. We will always have people and veterans that face a housing crisis, either the fact that they're literally homeless or that they're in danger of being homeless. 
So functional zero says uh, that when someone is homeless or when someone is in danger of homelessness, that we know where to send them and we know how to uh, end up offering housing and helping them get back on their feet. Colorado Springs has not yet achieved functional zero for veteran homelessness. Why do you think that is? Well, what we have been able to accomplish uh, with some investment in the Colorado Springs Rescue Mission is that uh, we are able to offer a shelter bed to any uh, homeless veteran that that we find. Where we have not succeeded to the extent that we would like, and I think it has something to do with the dramatically improving economy, uh, is in the permanent supportive housing uh, arena. Uh, the va- voucher that we're able to give them that gives them, you know, X amount of money a month to uh, rent an apartment yeah. is becoming less viable as the uh, rental rates are increasing dramatically. Uh, and in Colorado Springs, where we started from a much lower place than, say, the Denver metro area, we actually have among the highest uh, increasing rental rates in the country right now, oh. which is a function of uh, the dramatically improving economy. And when you've got – let's say we've got a veteran with uh, mental health or substance abuse issues – uh, it is very tempting uh, for uh, a apartment manager to want to go to a market rate uh, that's going to bring in more money than to take on that particular issue. So I think it takes uh, much more work, but we're we're committed uh, to doing the work uh, that we need to do and creating the uh, housing uh, uh, the available housing to deal with this population. Uh, we. I think have got a good strategy. We've got a group called the Continuum of Care, which is the local service providers, Springs Rescue Mission, Catholic Charities, Ecumenical Social Ministries. We work with the veterans organizations um, uh, to improve this situation. I, I think, um, uh, well, we haven't got to where we'd like to be. Uh, we've gotten close, and, and we are absolutely committed to to closing the gap. So there is an affordable housing crunch in Colorado Springs and the environs. Is this about building new housing, new affordable housing, or negotiating with owners of current properties, do you think? I think it's both. I think it's uh, in, uh, increasing the inventory of affordable housing. Uh, Colorado Springs Housing Authority uh, can be a big aid there. I think it's um, uh, increasing the uh, voucher support that we're able to provide uh, to veterans, um, and whether that's going to be you know doable, depending upon what happens in Washington, uh, I'm not sure. But I, uh, you'll not find a, a community that is more committed to its veterans than Colorado Springs, for rather obvious reasons. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of veterans who want to help other veterans, and so um, whatever the uh, the the climate the funding climate is uh, we're going to continue to to work as hard as we possibly can to reach this functional zero because there are obviously affordable housing questions that tie to the federal budget as we were discussing earlier yeah, absolutely I, I want to talk a bit about infrastructure Mayor Southers there's a year old tax in Colorado Springs to pay for roads voters had to approve that of course uh, transportation money a big topic at the legislature this session. Lawmakers unveiled a funding plan to ask voters for a statewide sales tax increase. I'm curious if you support that broader statewide approach. 
I do not support the current version, and here's why. Uh, with the transportation uh, sales tax increase that Colorado Springs did last year, we're at 8.25% for the total sales tax. The current version of that bill calls for a 6.62% increase. That would take us to 8.87, perilously close, in my opinion, to 9%, which I kind of uh, think uh, is a point that uh, gives you no flexibility in terms of any future. Um, What's important to know is that Colorado Springs, only 8% of our revenues come from property tax. Uh, There are other cities in Colorado that have a very, very small property tax base in relationship to sales tax. We're heavily dependent upon sales tax. Then um, what I thought this bill ought to be centered on is getting uh, state highways fixed, expansion of I-25 both north and south of uh, Denver, I-70. But as you know, only $300 million of the $700 million that's in this uh, tax increase uh, would go to uh, state highways, and the rest is kind of a Christmas tree that comes back to local governments. Um, uh, the, of the uh, uh, excess over $300 million, 30% goes to transit. I think that would uh, be most beneficial to the uh, metro Denver area. Then it's divided between counties and cities after that. Uh, here's a, a rub that Colorado Springs has that probably no other city has. Uh, because the economy is doing well, uh, we are uh, spending to our Tabor cap any of that money that came our way in grants or in the local government money. We'd have to go to the voters and ask for their permission to keep it because we have a uh, Tabor in our city charter as well as the state Tabor that's imposed on local governments. And it covers those grants, uh, eh? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we had to ask the permission last year to keep some money that came in the form of a state grant. You mentioned transit there is mostly benefiting Metro Denver, uh, but I've seen some say that Colorado Springs and that region, the the Greater Pikes region, could could use some transit. Well, yes, and uh, we have what's called uh, uh, Mountain Metro Transit, which is funded by. Uh, PPRTA, which is regional, uh, 10% of the the regional, we, we have a 1% tax that's imposed regionally. 10% of that goes to uh, fund our mountain metro transit, which is not just Colorado Springs, but includes some of the environs. Right. And then the city puts uh, what's called a maintenance of effort of a minimum of $7.6 million a year uh, into it. I don't doubt that we would get uh, some money out of uh, some transit dollars. But I, I do think it's interesting that the uh, metro mayors seem to be uh, chomping at the bit uh, to get at those dollars. And I, I, I just have a feeling it would be most beneficial there. Mm. And they apparently don't think they have the problem that we do in terms of asking voters to retain any of that money. So very briefly, would you support a statewide tax increase for transportation, sales tax increase, if it were a more modest amount? Uh, I might. Uh, okay. I wish it wasn't sales tax. I'd much rather prefer it be a gas tax, but as you know, that doesn't poll very well. Mm-hmm. But I do. I think this is asking for too much, and I think it's going. I, I think you'll see other uh, cities, particularly outside of uh, the Denver metro area, be very concerned about what this does to their uh, sales tax uh, position. On to the incredibly sexy issue of stormwater now. This is actually hugely important to prevent flooding and to water quality. Uh, But, you know, if you walked up to someone and said, there's a stormwater measure on the ballot, I think that 
Some might be uh, hard-pressed to explain what that is. So next month, April 4th, Colorado Springs voters will vote on ballot issue 2 to allow the city to keep more revenue under Tabor for improvements. Just briefly, how's the pitch to voters going? Uh, I think it's going well. The polling I've seen is uh, pretty good. You're you're exactly right. It's hard to uh, get them too enthused about stormwater, but we have a long, tormented history. Um, uh, we had some major uh, – Colorado Springs has grown rapidly. We're 460,000 people. 75% of that growth has taken place in the last uh, 40, 45 years. And we probably did not do as good a job as we should have in that tremendous growth period – Dealing with stormwater, a real wake-up call in the late 90s were some flooding incidents that caused the uh, city and council and mayor to impose a stormwater fee like most major cities have. Um, but uh, Doug Bruce led a campaign against that in 2009, calling it a, uh, a rain tax, and it passed. And since then, we've been funding stormwater. We went from $15, $16 million a year uh, from that fee to about an average of $3 million in general fund a year with some grants. And that's inadequate, and that caused us legal problems with Pueblo, who tried to stop the Southern Delivery System, our massive water project, from going online last April. And we entered into an agreement with them where we committed over the next 20 years to spend the amount that we would have if we still had uh, the um, stormwater enterprise, because that was Pueblo's uh, beef. We gave you permission to build this, gave you what's called a 1041 permit, and then you defunded the enterprise. So we've resolved that issue with Pueblo, but we still have a suit from the the EPA. Hmm. Uh, until that suit's resolved, uh, I don't feel comfortable going to the voters and saying, this is the long-term solution, because I, I couldn't guarantee that it is. But I think we're going to resolve that suit in the next year or two. And in the meantime, we have an obligation to spend an average of $17 million a year over the next several years in our agreement with Pueblo. Uh, that's coming out of general fund. If we're able to retain the $6 million a year for the next uh, couple of years, um, uh, that will give us uh, – you know, we can spend more than that $17 yeah. million and protect us, protect us from a – a downturn on the backside. I'm I'm sorry that we've run out of time, Mayor. There, there's there was more on my list to talk to you about, but thanks for broaching these issues with us. Well, Colorado Springs is doing great, and I'm pleased to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things going on down here. John Southers, Mayor of Colorado Springs, the state's second largest city. He was previously Colorado's Republican Attorney General, and before that, served as U.S. Attorney. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. All eyes were on Michaela Schifrin Saturday afternoon at the World Cup Ski Finals in Aspen. The day before, she'd learned she'd accumulated enough points to clinch the overall title for the season. But that didn't stop her from going all out to win one more slalom race, her specialty. Can she become the first woman to win three in a row here in Aspen? First, she has to get rid of Vela Zuzalova, and then watch carefully. She's there, 32-24.15. Is that good enough? Well, it was good enough for a second-place victory, but the 22-year-old sensation from Eagle Vale is now the youngest overall winner since 2003 and only the third American woman to claim the title. Denver Post reporter John Meyer is just back from covering the finals in Aspen. Welcome back down the hill. Thank you. It was a little anticlimactic, given that Schifrin 
learned she'd won the overall title before she even raced this weekend. Do you think that affected her skiing? No, not at all. I, she wanted to put on a show. She knew that racing in her home state with a lot of fans of the U.S. ski team and fans of her, they came there. They wanted to see her win. She actually felt a lot of pressure, even though hmm. there was an infinitesimal chance for her to to not win the overall by the time she got to Aspen. She need, needed to crash, basically, in both of her races. And one of the other women's had to win three races and win or finish second in the fourth. And that wasn't going to happen. So no. it was there was a mathematical chance, but in, in all reality, she had the World Cup all but one when she came to Aspen. You have been covering Michaela Schifrin all season. How did she pull off the title victory? Because she's really good. Uh, <laughs> because she dominated uh, slalom. Yeah. Because she improved greatly in giant slalom. And uh, this, these are things that she had been doing in, in re- recent years. But she also began to uh, race some of the Super G and downhill races. Those are called the speed events. Those are downhill. You go 80 miles an hour. Super G, just a little bit, a little turnier and a, only a little bit slower than that. So basically, she's expanding her repertoire. And that allows her to score a, a few more points than only in GS and slalom. Who are the other names that have won the overall title? You, you mean Americans, obviously, right? Indeed, yeah. Okay, so Phil Mayer was the, one of the first great American ski racers. He won the title in 1981, 1982, and 1983. In 1983, Tamara McKinney also won it. So in 83, Americans won both titles. Tamara actually came from her home of Squaw Valley this weekend, this past weekend, to see Michaela win the overall. Very cool. Um, and then in, in addition to that, uh, Lindsey Vaughn. Won it in 08, 09, 10, and 2012. Bodie Miller won it in 2005 right. and 2008. Bodie Miller. What were the crowds like in Aspen for the finals? Uh, jubilant. Jubilant, enthusiastic, excited. Big? Very big. Okay. Yes, absolutely. The stands were filled to overflowing, and people were hiking up the hill to get a good look at what was happening. Uh, Schifrin, of course, won the gold medal in slalom at the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, Russia. She is looking ahead to the 2018 Games in South Korea. Uh, Certainly, she must be considered an early favorite for the slalom, right? She is probably going to be one of the most sought-after stars of the entire U.S. Olympic team next year, not just of the skiers, Uh because she figures to contend for multiple medals, Again, in 2014, she was basic, she was ruling the world in slalom, but she was still coming along in her other events. Now you'd have to say that she will be favored to win the slalom, favored to win at least a medal in giant slalom. And there's also the combined event, which is downhill and slalom. And because she's so good at slalom, in fact, she won a combined event this year. So now she's looking at being, even if she doesn't improve, which she certainly will, She's looking at contending for three medals. Oh, so she'll stick with the speed events, it sounds like. She will continue to – she's not doing all the speed events. She's doing select speed events. No. She's uh, getting up to speed, if you will. <laughs> she's learning what, what, what it takes to, to race at 80 miles an hour. That's, that's a lot faster than slalom and requires different uh, understanding of the hill. Uh, it requires a lot more experience. She has been doing this since she was 16, competing in World Cup. 
I went back and looked looked at my first story on her over the weekend. She had just turned 16. It was a couple of weeks after she made her World Cup debut at at, uh, at age 15. And she, in fact, she turned 16 the day after those two races. Oh. Uh, but she's she's. I've been able to watch her develop, uh, to see her go from. A pro- but I should say this. Everybody knew she was going to be spectacular because they could see what was in her scheme. There's a complicated formula. I won't try to explain it, but there's something called fist points, and it allows you to compare skiers at different ages and careers. Her fist points, when she was 16 years old, were better than Lindsey Vaughn and Julia Mancuso. So you could look at her then and say, she's got a chance to be as good as they were. In essentially seeing... Uh, into a crystal ball a bit uh, and her, her kind of raw talent that would develop. Let's talk about Lindsay Vaughn. So she has struggled with injuries but did manage to place second in the downhill last Wednesday. Then she crashed in Super G. Mm-hmm. Uh, has this been a disappointing season for her, do you think? Oh, in a lot of ways. But but most of the disappointment was really kind of out of her control. It was disappointed because, first of all, she broke her arm in preseason training at Copper Mountain That's in right. November. It was, And it became more complicated than just a broken arm because it did some nerve damage, which, which impaired the – basically, she had to relearn how to use her right hand. And that took time, and she missed the first five or six weeks of the season. So at that point, she had little or no chance to win World Cup titles in downhill and Super G. She was trying to get back in time for for the World Championships. How long do you think she'll be at it? I be- she's been saying she wants certainly for next year because she wants to go back to the Olympics okay. and one more season. That's what she's been saying. However, she's been crashing a lot, and you know some people around the U.S. ski team are starting to worry about the crashes. Uh, as Bob Biati, the the founder of the U.S. ski team, told me in Aspen, you only have so many crashes in you, and and he's concerned about that. Even though you were in Aspen to cover the women, I don't want to ignore the men, so I'll point out that uh, Marcel. Hirscher of Austria won the overall title in Aspen. He's a slalom specialist and uh, actually secured the title several weeks ago. So it was going into that strong. John, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. By the way, Hirscher said Uh yesterday that when he saw Michaela at age 17, he was, quote unquote, speechless to see how much talent she had. And that was four years ago. He knew it, too. That's John Meyer of the Denver Post. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The National Parks inspire composer Stephen Lias. He has written more than a dozen pieces about the parks, including this one inspired by Gates of the Arctic in Alaska. Stephen, I feel like I have to talk like this after music. Uh, You should add reverb to our voices. (laughs) Uh, Your newest work debuts Saturday with the Boulder Phil, and it's inspired by Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park. 
I'll say that the orchestra then heads to Washington, D.C. to play the same program at the Kennedy Center. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. The story of how you began taking your adventures in national parks and then turning them into music starts, I guess, with a visit to Big Bend in Texas. Tell us a little bit about how you made music out of that experience. Yeah, I had been a composer for many years and had been interested in outdoor pursuits for many years, but hadn't really been combining them as one thing. And then I went on a a kayaking trip with a, a friend of ours and her husband. And after that trip, she asked me if I would write a sonata for her. And she is a fine trombonist. And so I said, well, why don't I write it about this trip that we just took together? Uh That way you'll be performing a piece that that is not only about a natural space, but about a memory that we have together. So it's a natural way to start the process. So I wrote a a three-movement sonata for her called River Runner, which sort of recounts the feeling of adventure that we had as we went through that canyon. love how the piano sounds a little bit like rapids or maybe eddies in that piece. That's intentional. I'm glad that you hear that in there. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, do you try to mimic nature literally, or is it more impressionistic for you? Certainly there's lots of both. Uh, There are many times when composers, both me and throughout the ages, have imitated natural sounds. Most recently, the the piece that you played at the opening of this segment uh, has a section where I imitate wolf calls that I heard in Gates of the Arctic. But I would say more often it's more impressionistic. Composers tend to be a little cautious about doing too much nature imitation because it sounds Mickey Mousey. Ah, right, like the soundtrack the Foley sounds for an animated cartoon. How did you make the sounds of the wolves? What what did you do to... We had encountered some wolves while we were hiking in Gates of the Arctic, and I literally pulled out a little notepad and jotted down the musical shapes that their calls were making. Oh, my. And then quite literally transcribed those into various instruments in the piece. So there are seven or eight wolves talking to each other, and I picked seven or eight instruments that all sort of echoed this same gesture back and forth to one another. What instrument is most most wolf-like, do you think? Oh, English horn. English horn. Yes. (laughs) No question. You've worked as an artist in residence at several national parks, starting with two weeks at Rocky here in Colorado in 2010. What do you remember about the time you spent at Rocky Mountain National Park? Well, the most crucial thing that I did at Rocky was that I did get to summit Long's Peak, Hmm. which, which you can see from this whole region of the country and is sort of a figure that looks over everyone's shoulder wherever you are. And I'd been to Rocky so many times and desperately wanted to do that hike. But uh, but didn't have the time to. And so the residency provided me with time to acclimate, time to do some training hikes. And uh, eventually, near the end of my residency, I did Summit Long's Peak, which was thrilling and then became part of the piece of music that I wrote about that experience. Indeed, your climb inspired the climax of the first piece you wrote about Rocky Mountain National Park. So not the one that debuts this weekend. It's called the Timberline Sonata. Here's some of a live performance. 
very triumphant. Yes, I can hear the bigness of the of the vista. But did you try to capture your exhaustion too? Yes, earlier okay. <laughs> in that same movement, there are uh, there are little moments where I capture the strange sight of all everyone's little headlamps bobbing as they hike across uh, the ridge in the dark on their way up, and other parts where I capture the exhaustion of of being you know too tired to go on. So certainly, I tried to take it through all of those emotions. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're speaking with composer Stephen Lias, who has been inspired uh, many times now to write music based on the national parks. And uh, in fact, he has written a new piece about Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, which is about to make its debut. Do you find that people who hear the music and have been to the national park in question, that they somehow identify with it more than they might some other piece. Yes, that's I think that's inevitable and I often say when I when I play these pieces for audiences near the park that I hope that they will recognize a familiar friend in the music and that's certainly what we're hoping for this new piece about Rocky that they'll recognize, you know, some of the emotions that they feel when they go to this place in the music that they hear. Yeah, the piece you'll debut with the Boulder Phil this Saturday is called All the Songs That Nature Sings. What, yes. a, what a beautiful title, All the Songs That Nature Sings. Tell us about what that means. Well, that's from the end of a longer quote by the gentleman who is known as the father of Rocky Mountain National Park. His name is Enos Mills. Enos Mills, oh yes. Yeah. And uh, when I was in the park last year, I spent a lot of time reading volume after volume of even Enos Mills's writings about the park in search of that that quote that would be the the piece title and the concept and he has this beautiful beautiful quote it's about a paragraph and a half long about where the trail takes us and how it it celebrates the most beautiful things and these glorious cataracts and it ends by saying and the trail is in the heart of all the songs that nature sings and i thought well there's my concept for the piece and also my title for the piece i was going to give you credit for it but it's enos mills <laughs> no it's enos mills so it obviously has not made its debut yet and we don't have a recording of it in particular but uh, here's a melody from your earlier piece, the Timberline Sonata, that I understand has some connection to the new piece. the melody around that? Yes, this is the third movement of the original piece I wrote about Rocky called Lakes. It's inspired by the tranquility and serenity of the more than 150 lakes in Rocky Mountain National Park. And each time that this sonata is performed, I get complimented on only one movement of it. Okay. And it's this movement. Mm. And so I knew something about this melody is resonating with people. It's plaintive. There's a there's yeah. a sadness to it, or maybe it's just contemplative. Yes, contemplative is a great word for it. So as I approached this new piece, I thought, wow, I'd really like 
something from my original residency to be part of this new composition. Of course, this piece we're listening to now is only four minutes long for two musicians. And the piece I had to write is 15 minutes long for a full symphonic orchestra. So it it involved a complete reimagining of this melody. But I did use this melody as the backbone of the entire new piece. So if your listeners can imagine that plaintive melody being transformed into a great, grandiose, spectacular climax, uh, that's sort of where it ends up going. To the scale of 150 lakes, I suppose. Yes. Getting getting the magnitude of that. You know, I learned a great word recently, lacustrine, which means related to lakes. Ah, I don't know that word. This is a lacustrine piece of music. Yes. The original one is, I will say that the new piece, all the songs that nature sings, celebrates sort of the full range of what you experience in the park. It, it, It expands beyond the lakes to the mountains and the peaks and the wildlife and the weather. We're speaking with composer Stephen Lias, who is about to debut with the Boulder Phil, uh, his new piece, All the Songs That Nature Sings, about Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, do you think of yourself as an advocate for the Park Service and at a time when um, it might be facing budget cuts? Sure. I, the, the short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is I see myself as a nexus between two different worlds that both are trying to reach new audiences. If you, if you say, does this music bring classical mu- music lovers to the parks? The answer is yes. Mm. But it also brings people who love the national parks to classical music. People so who, trying to grow both audiences Yeah, in a people way. who might not otherwise come to a symphonic orchestra concert might come because they hear this broadcast and think, oh, I love Rocky Mountain National Park. So I, I think it goes both ways. Both the national parks and the arts community are looking to reach younger audiences, reach people who may not already be connected to them. And this, I serve as sort of an intermediary that can help both that. Right. Maybe this is a way to bring outdoor people in and indoor people out. Oh, beautifully said. Um, yes. Uh, do you bring instruments with you when you hike? I don't. I Most of the time when I'm writing music about my own experience, I... I remind myself that the most important thing I can do when I'm out there is have the experience. Mm. And so I take lots of pictures and maybe have a sketch pad with me, but I don't do the composing until I get back to my studio and work it out. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Nice to be speaking with Stephen Lias, who has written all the songs that nature sings. It will debut with the Boulder Phil this Saturday, and you can hear the concert live on CPR Classical starting at 7.30 that night, Saturday night. The orchestra will then perform next week at a festival at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. We're leaving you with Gates of the Arctic, a little more of a piece from Lias. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A chef, a restaurant, and an animal scientist from Colorado are up for a top honor in food, the James Beard Awards. Denver chef Alex Seidel is in the running for Best Chef in the Southwest. Boulder's Frosca Food and Wine has been nominated for Outstanding Restaurant Nationwide. And Colorado State University's Temple Grandin will be honored for her contributions to improving the food supply. But enough about achievement. 
We asked Chef Seidel for his kitchen horror stories. Here's that conversation with Nathan Heffel from last year. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Nathan. Before we talk about failed dishes, uh, the kitchen can be a dangerous place, as we just heard. Are there any scars you could tell me about? You know, I don't have too many battle wounds, uh, but having those scars is pretty much a normality in the kitchen these days. So you never, you've never lost a finger, of course. You've got them all there. I have all <laughs> 10 digits. <laughs> do, do chefs at the top of their culinary game still have kitchen disasters? Absolutely. I'm in the process of opening a, uh, a commercial kitchen right now, and it seems to be a disaster as, as we're going. What do you mean? Talk about that. You know, it's uh, the fourth fourth place I've designed as far as a kitchen, and uh, it's never easy. Every place is different. Um, right now, we're having equipment issues. Uh, we got sent a propane stove instead of a gas stove. And that makes a difference? That makes a difference because you can't use it. Oh. So, you know, and it just seems to me that you're moving from kitchen to kitchen to kitchen. Uh, do you have to learn different things per kitchen in that sense? Yeah, every every kitchen has its nooks and crannies. Uh, every Everyone has... Uh, you know, it's just a, it's just different atmosphere, different environment, and uh, takes different skill to work work each kitchen you work in. Your restaurant in Denver, Fruition, which opened in 2007, is farm to table. Uh, Zagat has called you a local innovator and one of the quote truly pioneering chefs in Denver. I'm sure that doesn't just happen. Uh, you know, uh, experimentation must breed disaster. Is is there one that stands out when you were creating your menu for Fruition nine years ago? You know. Um, you know, I think uh, the menu evolution, it, it changes. You change as a chef. You, you develop new ideas. Uh, we're doing different food now than we were 10 years ago. Um, but we certainly had some disasters at the beginning of fruition, and uh, there was one in particular that comes to mind that basically ruined our show for, the, for a good hour. What do you mean? Um, we were, boy, I, I remember it being probably a 90-plus degree day. Uh, Friday, Saturday night, I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, if you've ever been to uh, Fruition, the kitchen is a shoebox. It's a tiny little kitchen, five guys huddled in there like sardines, and uh, we were working, we were all hustling through service and uh, putting out all our plates, and we kind of have a show counter uh, where all the plates are plated on. We put down a nice little white linen tablecloth Mm and... Uh, up above us, uh, there is a shelf, and on that shelf was a glass bottle of balsamic vinegar. And it got so hot in the kitchen that that bottle of vinegar exploded in the middle of service, drenched everybody with balsamic vinegar, <laughs> glass all over our plating surface. The food all had to be thrown away in the middle of service. The plates all had to be scraped and redone. Uh, it was it was interesting. And so, how does one recover from that? You've got, of course, patrons I- in the front of the house, and they can't know about it. They can't know about those disasters, so uh, they're not expecting anything but a nice plate of food in a timely manner. So it was basically just ripped down the line. Everybody shuffled every instead of plating and using their utensils to put food on plates. It was let's get everything taken care of, re- redone, and uh, we kept going. I've read that you have zero rules in your kitchen saying, quote, rules are for children or for those who don't know any better. Why is that? You know, I like to think that, uh, you know, part of our success at Fruition and Mercantile, uh, at the farm, and now at Food Mill, our newest venture, is really about the people. Uh, we wouldn't have the success without the people that uh, make up all those places. And I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by a good group of uh, a good team. And uh, when when we hire for people, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for professionals. 
We're looking for people who want to make this their career. And uh, with that, you get people who are dedicated to the craft. And uh, for that, if you have those types of individuals in your atmosphere, or in your culture, you know, hopefully rules are rules, you know, they're a little stuffy. And, and you, you say you have, of course, have fruition, mm-hmm. then uh, the mercantile uh, provisions and, and, and dining, dining provision. provisions. And of course, the farm in Larkspur, where you have animals and, and plants there, have... Has that taken you out of your kitchen role? Has has the disasters maybe moved from the kitchen now to the back office? You know, uh, the last year of my life is certainly one that I've been looking inside of myself. Uh, you go from one culture of 25 people every day and being a part of that culture and, you know, uh, being vested in that team every single day, six days, seven days a week. And then you split yourself between two cultures. Uh, so it makes it challenging. Uh, and, uh you know, I've uh, certainly had my little bouts with uh, my own, uh, I guess, anxiety or, you know, taking that role from being a chef or being a cook. You know, that's all I know is cooking. Yeah. And uh, I've done it for 25 plus years. And now I'm kind of taking on different roles uh, with the restaurants and overseeing all the operations and uh, also working on advocacy and, and giving back to our community. So uh, do, do you ever, I mean, of course, you still get into the kitchen. Do you want to do that more or is it really trying to find that 50-50 balance? You know, it is good balance. I don't, I don't think I could ever uh, last on the line every Friday, Saturday night with these young kids, uh, 23 years old, that are, are running these kitchens. Uh, they do a great job and uh, I don't know if I have the speed to keep up with them anymore. What is Colorado's culinary style? You know, I don't know if Colorado has a culinary style for really? sure. I, uh, I actually sat down with a focus group uh, two weeks ago, and we talked about this one particular subject. And can Colorado be defined by cuisine? Um, and I'm not so sure it can. I think uh, when you look back uh, to the wild, wild west, we were known for buffalo and elk and, uh, you know, cow balls. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now I think things have evolved a little bit. And... Uh, uh, we've developed as a as a community with uh, good food, and it's been. So, so we're losing this cowtown image. You think? I absolutely think so. I I think when I moved here in two thousand two, it certainly still resonated. Uh, we were a meat and potatoes town, and you know I still think we are, and I don't think we should shy away from that either. Uh, but certainly, uh, the palates of our uh, guests have you know have uh, evolved over the last five. Even five years. Yeah. Uh, we're serving different foods that we couldn't serve five, seven years ago. I, I was reading that you also can plate things differently and, and present them differently now that you've established yourself as a culinary uh, person here in, in Denver. Well, plating is certainly uh, an art as a chef. Um, that is where your creativity comes into play uh, once you take the ingredients uh, from its heat source or uh, and put it onto the plate, it, it certainly takes an eye and uh, some precision to make those plates look beautiful. So you're saying that we should probably not lose sight of our Cowtown image, in a sense. I don't think so. I think uh, it's part of our history and it's part of uh, our community. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we should ever shy away from that. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Alex Seidel is a finalist for a James Beard Best Chef Award. It's sort of the Oscars of food. His restaurants are Fruition and Mercantile Dining and Provisions in Denver, Frosca Food and Wine in Boulder, and CSU Animal Scientist Temple Grandin are also up for James Beard Honors. This is Colorado Matters.